believe the action is the juice for you, you've come to the right podcast. Welcome to Manhunting. I'm your host, Rob Zachney, here with Nextlander's Alex Navarro and Philadelphia's own Dia Lazzina to continue our journey through the career of director, writer, and producer Michael Mann to examine his timeless themes of craft, labor, capital, and dudes rocking. Uh, so I think something we've realized as we've gone through Mann's body of work to date, especially Alex and I, is that he recycles scenes and ideas constantly and an awful lot of iconic moments uh, from his 1995 crime opus Heat crops up in bits and pieces throughout the rest of his career. And you haven't seen the last of it. In later movies, you will see these things crop up as well. But by the time we hit Heat in this journey, I now feel like I've seen constituent parts of Heat uh like almost like stitched together body parts sort of out of place in other works because I know them from Heat first and foremost. Uh, you know, they, they they there was a bit of this in uh you know in Miami Vice. Some of the themes of thief thief come through this. There were some scenes lifted directly uh when you're when you're talking about crime story. And yet Heat doesn't get a reputation for being a pastiche of man's own ideas or fixations or quirks in part because it is far and away the best known of man's crime films, the one that broke through to wide acclaim and classic status. And I think that's kind of where I want to have this conversation framed. Uh, he's a movie a lot of people know really well. I don't think we need to go through it in like, it's a very long movie too. So I don't think we need to go through it in like uh, really intense point by point detail. Well, and we also that. did that already last time. We went through the entire plot of Heat because he already made this whole damn movie at least once. Right. Well, we saw we saw the we saw the uh, rough walkthrough. Uh, yes. He just happened to film uh, for for a network of of Heat. Uh, if you really want to see people going uh, down the manhole all the mm -hmm. way uh, over Heat, check out One Heat Minute, a podcast where the conceit was to. Do a podcast episode analyzing one minute of this film uh, each episode and started as a weird conceit. It got increasingly good as it went along, I would say. I mean, that's a guaranteed 180 episodes right there. I mean, you that's know, why wouldn't you do that? Why was this movie so long? I when I when I when you first mentioned the one heat minute thing, I was just like, OK, well, you know, like that's it's 90 episodes. That's. That's a healthy thing. And then no. I realized, no, he is fucking two hours and 50 minutes long. Are you fucking kidding me? It's the opposite of a healthy thing. <laughs> yeah, it is uh, three glorious hours of uh, of crime epic. And I think a that's pure testosterone fueled melodrama. <laughs> so I guess that that's kind of my question is, why do we think that this is the definitive man film in most people's minds. Like, why does this one loom so large? Even when you have like truly great films like thief, there kind of being eclipsed by it. Uh, why does this one break through and become like kind of a, a household reference as it were uh, in a way that like, I'm not sure any of his other films really do. Because when Al Pacino and Robert De Niro yell, Straight guys' dicks get hard. Yep. You're not wrong. And if they are going to do it together in the same movie, that is, yeah. I mean, how do you say no to that? I mean, do it, like, to be fair, this is, 
one of the most powerfully cast films. Oh yeah, uh, in the man filmography, and I think a they're probably ridiculous cadre of character actors and people you will come to know in the ensuing decades. Yeah, it is. It is a a strangely stacked thing. Like you don't see many films like it. Like of its like prior to getting into either like big Hollywood epics where you have people just randomly cast uh, at, you know, Ted Danson popping up and like save your private, saving private right. Ryan or something. Uh, or you get to like the big Marvel films where the whole point is to get as big name and actor as you can for the part of like rando superhero in the background there, no matter what, like but- getting Christian Bale movies Batman to play some guy who is called a god killer who I assume was in a comics run in the 1970s and has not been heard of since then. Right. So I think there I think there's a lot to recommend that theory that like it is a movie that sort of succeeds on pure star power. Where it's like, a big part like of it. we're not messing around here with my cool Chicago theater friends. Mm-hmm. Like all those guys, like sorry, I'm in Hollywood now. No yes. more room for y'all. Uh, I have entered my LA phase. Yeah, sorry, uh, John Santucci. I, I hope I hope you're all right. You might be back in jail, uh, but like, hope you get your get your shit together or whatever. Sorry that happened to you. Bless your That's- heart. Maybe next time we do a TV pilot, I'll find a spot for you. But until then. Yeah, I so here's the thing. For, the reason this movie looms most large for me and why it is sort of, you know, I think kind of my... Def- Going through this, I will say that I think ultimately I feel like Thief is maybe actually a little bit, like works a little bit better for me overall as a movie, partially because it does lack some of that bloat that he has. But this was my first man movie. This movie came out in 1995. I was about 13 or 14 when it came out. I did not see it in theaters when it came out, but... Being a suburban child whose parents had HBO, I was exposed to it soon enough after the fact. And it was definitely one of those movies that I remember watching on like some random middle of the night channel surfing like, oh, I've never seen this before. Uh, yeah, it's like 1130. I don't go to bed for another four hours. Fuck it. Let's see what this is. And having my tiny mind blown uh, just by not one, the sheer star power of it, the sheer number of actors I had heard of who were like, oh, my God, how are all these people in this movie? But two, it is. I don't know how to explain this any better other than to say this is a movie that is masculine to the most absurd degree. And I think that being a teenage boy at that time, I was extremely receptive to the idea of stoic, you know, intense men doing stoic, intense things while also incredible violence is playing out in the background. Yeah, I think, um, and there was an awful lot of, I think, I think at the time I'm, I'm with you. I I think for a long time I would have said, uh, like, like Mohicans is my first Michael Mann film. Uh, Mm -hmm. so that one, like, that's the one that I probably came into this, maybe overwriting a little bit. Um, and thief is one that I think as the years go by does sort of like rise in my estimation. Uh, but for a long time there, I, I think something else about like heat is that it does really succeed at making that tension between like the outward stoicism and the depth of feeling of these wounded gangsters Mm -hmm. um, feel very profound 
uh, where I'm like, man, like the whole human experience is encompassed in that moment where he, he turns the key, he goes to the hotel to kill Wayne grow, yep. even though he knows he should make his escape, man. That's, you know, that's just life. Yeah. The pull, the need, the, the desperation for vengeance over ultimately overrides all of the programming that you have abided by and look what happens. Yeah. And like it, it is, you know, a number of people here are, are at the height of their power. I do feel like, the other part of this is we we talked last week. We were talking about L.A. takedown, um, mm-hmm. how weird those performances are and right. how sort of unconvincing they are as, uh, you know, Vincent Hanna and Neil uh, McCauley or Cauley uh, as he's he's renamed for this film. But I think something I've I've become more acutely aware of is that. Both Pacino and but Pacino and De Niro would go on, and we're already starting to uh, Pacino more than De Niro at this point would have their like kind of phoned in wacky stage of their mm-hmm. careers, and I would say Pacino is operating in that mode much more so than De Niro, and I think the other part of this is for all the star power. Um, I do feel like they're operating on different wavelengths in oh, yeah. this film. Um, and I'm not I mean, sure have to, to a certain degree, but yeah. Yeah, it's I, I would say like there's just moments where like De Niro, like uh, where Pacino is just going for it. And I think he d- still does have like grace notes as well. Like I think him trying to figure out where he stands in, uh, you know, one of the things they introduce here that is not an L.A. takedown is the fact that his new relationship also now involves a stepdaughter right uh and an absentee uh like biological father literally never seen in the movie right and like i think those scenes he plays very well where he's trying to figure out like where do i stand in this uh like i've like this kid is being neglected kind of by both parents and i'm not her dad but like i feel obliged to somehow be involved in this i think he plays that stuff very straight and handles it very very well but then at the same time, like every time he goes into, um, oh, you know, like NYPD blue sip quits mode, like shaking down some scowls and things like this. Mm-hmm. Every time he's got to go like work his CIs, man, he just, you know, takes all the, <laughs> takes all the restraints off the performance. I'm not entirely sure if this is actually true or if it's just one of those urban legend things that has gone around for so long that it's been accepted as canon. But I think there was somewhere and this is not mentioned in the commentary anywhere by man. So who knows if it's true or not? But uh, there was some point in which the script involved uh, Vincent Hanna having a coke addiction in addition to, you know, kind of everything else going on. And if you think about that some of the notes that he hits throughout this performance, you can pretty easily imagine him just doing a big old line right before he walked into that club or went to that dog fighting pit or wherever and just being like, all right, time to go to work. Yeah, and his, it is established his wife is doing cocaine actively throughout the film, right? I, she's on pills. I don't know if she's on cocaine or not. He says grass and Prozac. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's very also, you know, very 90s. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, I, I think 
the the other thing to note here is like fundamentally this is this is LA takedown. I think some of the differences are maybe uh more illustrative of what's going on here uh than than the similarities. Cuz I think I think one of the other things that separates this from his other works uh including Thief is that I think this like he really is now trying to he is really trying to uh capture a very broad feel of field of view into the stories sort of telling a a crime epic that touches on a lot of different lives and in varying degrees of detail and is also trying in the way that like thief kind of tries to to at least allude to the fact that there are like structural or societal factors that like lead people down this road and certainly make this road maybe even a hell of a lot more appealing and sensible than like sticking it out in the grind of the working world. And so I think, you know, if you look at LA takedown, it is entirely about, you know, the crack cop and Mm -hmm. the master thief. And here in this, in this film, it is also much, much more about, you know, the failures, uh, like, you know, as we talked about, like, uh, the the politics of like a second marriage and like affects a divorce on kids. Uh, we're we're dealing with stuff like, you know, the fact that their getaway driver for the job that ultimately goes so wrong is a minor character in the story, but he's also somebody established as trying to like walk the straight and narrow, getting out of prison, and discovering that like there's an entire system of abuse and exploitation set up specifically for parolees. Uh, that like, you know, it's, it's kind of a race to see whether or not, um, you know, he's going to be hit up with a parole violation, uh, you know, just to, just to sort of push him back in line or he's going to snap, uh, because he's, he's basically trapped in a shitty diner job where his wages are being stolen. Um, and his employer and his parole officer are like in on it. Yeah. And is this this is the kind of stuff where like man is interested in this stuff, but also he's not quite as interested in it as the view from like a penthouse overlooking the Hollywood Hills uh, or or the or, or the, the the incredibly blue beach house that is, you know, only spartanly decorated and houses a man who has no attachments whatsoever. Well, man really likes his crystal orb inside the cube executive desk toy. Totally. That makes an appearance in this. And like, it's really funny seeing that, like seeing the shop up and just like, you know, being like, I know that fucking desk toy. Um, and like, that really feels like kind of encapsulating of all of man's thing. It's like, he wants this kind of all encompassing view of everything. But really at the end of the day, he's focused on like, who who is like, you know, the 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 exotic object that he can you know project all this fantasy through, and it is it's 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 you know, it's the dead tech postmodernist you know mm-hmm. uh, bullshit house, house. <laughs> bullshit house that's right. it's like well here's he loves the working man but he wants to frame the working man through lots and lots and lots of like box glass yes he wants an elevated working man here especially. Mm-hmm. Are you saying yeah, so yeah, go on. I was gonna say, like, even so we get like the whole thing about like Hannah with his master's degree and things like that. Like, yeah, you know, 
it's just this, you know, man has specific kind of interests, we'll say. Yeah, specific interests, and they manifest through very specific aesthetic choices that he mm-hmm. makes repeatedly throughout his career. Well, I think that something else is I do feel like aesthetically this is also a film that's charting the next direction he's going with his career. Yes. Um, which is that, like, he is now really fascinated. You know, it's it's cliche at this point, but, like, he is fascinated by, like, urban loneliness and, like, the city at night and the way that, like, emphasizes and exaggerates that loneliness. And I think it it comes through from the start of the film. I think, like, you know, I sort of sense this is a differently paced man film in some ways because, like, it's got that opening on a long shot that's just holding on a commuter rail station in Los Angeles. And you stare at it so long that it begins to like sort of just like dissolve into like abstract shapes and colors and, and like lights, form. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's really a shot. He hasn't really done since like maybe the opening shot of thief, uh, where he sort of pulls down through the, um, fire escapes in the rainstorm in Chicago. Yeah. But like, yeah. it is that sort of interest in just like, looking hard at like vacant like space um in the city and just like observing the form there and then isolating a character within that like sort of creating like creating this canvas and then like dropping a character into it um who is going to sort of stand apart for the duration of the film. I think that's the, this is how he introduces uh, De Niro is that he is this guy who emerges from a train in a crowd, but like is also a man apart throughout this, this opening sequence where we see him setting up, you know, the first, the first score of the film. Uh, but like his, like Neil Cauley's gift and calling card in this opening stage is the fact that like nobody notices anybody and nobody knows anybody. Right. Uh, in the city. I think, you know, you're going to see this. This becomes an acute anxiety by the time you hit collateral, right? Collateral is about the dread of realizing, like, the reason you can pass through the world and use it as, like, camouflage is also because in some ways you're already dead to it. You're, you're, you're a ghost within it. Um, and I think this is, this is sort of what man is really into exploring now with this mm-hmm. with this next stage mm-hmm. both like thematically and also just like as a visual stylist yeah and i think here you know he's he's pulling at those threads before i think he fully knows exactly what he wants to do with that sort of thing you know and the thing he's more fixated on here is trying to tell this story that he's been trying to tell it in some form since the early 80s and you know there's an aspect of that certainly with the crew and you know their ability to sort of exist outside the purview of, you know, law enforcement and anyone really knowing who they are for the most part until the heat comes down. Uh, we will be hearing the word heat a lot throughout <laughs> this. Uh, I didn't realize how much we heard the word heat until the it's at least a dozen times messages yeah. last night. <laughs> it's it's in there a lot. Dia, you were keeping count. How many did you come up with? I didn't count. I just took I just I paused and took a, a photo of my my television every time it happened. Yeah. Um and then <laughs> sent them all to the group chat. God, it's the thing that is striking, I will say, is that there are a few shots in here that you can definitely see, like how they informed what he the kinds of shots he was looking for and stuff like Miami Vice and and collaterals, especially going forward. 
Uh, you know, but like you can see here, this is where he fell in love with the idea of the LA landscape in its various forms. You know, it's the it's the shot of the subway at the beginning. Uh, it's kind of that big airport thing at the end. You know, the way he kind of shoots and light it lets the natural lighting of that thing sort of just kind of govern that entire scene. And then there's also that shot on uh, on Edie, uh, the woman that, that De Niro's character falls in love with on her balcony that apparently he couldn't get quite right because he decided to green screen part of that to make sure he got the exact frame of it. Uh, and as Dia put out, pointed out uh, last night when she was watching it, uh, the... Uh, they did not do a great job the on that green screen on shot. That one is really rough. Yeah, it's it's the only shot in that movie I can point to and be like, oh, they should have not done that. And it's really funny because you can tell it's like, okay, you did. You had a very specific vision in mind of how you wanted this scene to play out, and you the only way you could apparently get it was green screening it, and that just did not. No, does not work. That's going to look especially rough on that 4K edition that is. They That's apparently what I, just I was wondering if today. they were going to like try and clean that up because ooh. The last Blu-ray release they called the Director's Definitive Edition, and it did not actually change the edit of the movie at all. So I feel like they might actually just be done doing that with well, that movie. The interesting thing about this movie aesthetically, and also like with you know like his his falling in love with like shooting L.A. as a city, uh, that's what sixty million dollars and like what is it a hundred and seven days gets you? Yes, like yeah, it was at least a four month shoot, I think. Like, yeah, yeah, it's 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 very easy when you have like you know a very, very high-end cinematographer like Dante Spinotti, Mm -hmm. um, who is very technical. And, like, man really likes his technical shots. He does like to get up close and get kind of messy here and there with, like, the Standicam. But a lot of times he really likes these, you know, extremely technical shots. Like, the one, like, the, the opening of Thief, even, is a very technical shot. It's just he did it with, like, no money and, like, not as much time. Um like we get we get the one the 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 point of view of like um De Niro like pistol whipping Wayne Grow at the end where we oh, flashed yeah. we flashed to a point of view shot for like two seconds. What? It's a really like you can tell that there was probably a different version of that sequence he had in mind that probably had more of that. And then at a certain point he was like, This is one nauseating and two doesn't look very good. So let's just have that impact shot in there to, you know, to kind of jar the audience a little bit. And I think it works that way. But I, I, yeah. a longer version of that would have just been unpleasant to look at. But it's also so weird because it is such a kind of rough, messy, not like it's like, okay, yeah, I see why you 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 did this for like that impact shot, but also it's kind of tonally at odds with the rest of the cinematography for this movie. Um, yeah, I, there's a few technical things like that throughout, like that between the green screen, that shot, some very liberal use of stuntmen who I'm going to say maybe do <laughs> not particularly resemble the actors in which they are uh, they, they are portraying. And also there's maybe lingering on them a little too long. But, you know, like stuff like that, mostly I think adds flavor. It's really just that one green screen shot that I would remember. He actually comments on it in the, the commentary. And I was like, Oh, is this going to be where he finally is like, oh, I hate this shot? No. He's just like, yeah, we couldn't get the shot we wanted. So uh, we had to use a green screen. And then he immediately moves on, does not speak of it again. Well, this is this is like him in the Manhunter commentary also being like, man, I wish you could see the magical blessed shot we got of Dollar Hyde uh, the morning after. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dante loved the shot we had, but we, I just felt like those tattoos were too much. And so... 
you'll never see it because the yep. light was only perfect for that one moment. Uh, I do appreciate that we got the Tooth Fairy and Buffalo Bill in the same movie. Yep. Yeah, no, I'm always happy to see Tom Noonan. I like his little his little Tom turn. Noonan's character in this is great. I want a whole movie of just that guy. Like, he's the guy that they clearly based that GTA 5 side character on, the guy who gives you all your missions, Lester. But they decided <laughs> yeah. that the way to do him was to make him a thousand times more annoying, uh, which is a very rock star move to do. Yeah. But yeah, like, I like his little turn. I think he's one of the better, like, one or two scene pop-ups in this movie. And I do yeah. like... Uh, oh, go ahead, Rob. No, I was, I was just going to say... Man, again, shout us to shout us to an era where you would actually deploy character actors and character roles, right? Yeah, and I think that's that's like a good thing that like actually works here is like, you know, I was thinking about this movie in like, you know, kind of like uh, the the Babel era of filmmaking where we get these ensemble casts of like, you know, we get like eight different stories that are all kind of happening simultaneously or you know asynchronously or whatever, but they're full and complete, and we don't get just a character actor just showing up to be a character to add right. texture and flavor to the world. And that is the one thing that this movie does really good. Like at first, I was kind of like. Like with Dennis Haysbert's character, I'm like, damn, like, or, and William Fickner, like, I was like, damn, yeah. you guys are just like, you're barely in this movie. But when you are, I am focused exclusively on you and what you're doing. Yeah. Well, and, and like, there, well, in the Haysbert thing, I, I will just say, like, it's a, that is a, that is a plot thread that stands out much clearer in my mind from the first time I saw it all the way to today, where like, because of the little details in his performance and like, just the out like I cannot think about that moment where he tries to explain how excited he is by the idea of being a grill man at the at the diner and mm-hmm. the guy shits all over it. And he's like, no, you're not like good for yeah, you. You're also going to take out the garbage. You're also going to clean the bathrooms. You're also going to do all this other shit. Yeah. And like just that little beat of like seeing him try to like I'm like I'm good at stuff. Right. I can yeah. do stuff like I can, I can be useful to society worker. in a variety yeah. of ways. And the like sadistic joy this guy, like this this diner owner has in like taking that away from him. And also the fact that it works, right? That like yeah. Haysbert's cur- like Haysbert's performance in every single one of it is like it reminds me a lot of um oh gosh, uh out of sight. Yes. Where like looming in the background of out of sight is like Clooney's like pressure cooker tightening over the realization that like it's either crime or being jerked around by like petty tyrants at work yep. forever. Right. And it's like, and both are prison. Like both are like a kind of death and there's he'll, pr- he'll take the one that involves like the hail of bullets. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like this sort of calls that to mind that, that, that sort of sense of like, after a point you like fully understand how that character who like at the start of the film, the few scenes we, we, we get with him, he's trying real hard to keep it together, even though he's not getting much support and how easy it is. And the fact you almost like are kind of like, it's tragic, but you, you fully are with him when he throws that apron aside and yes. goes off to like join the heist. He's going to get killed. But like that moment where he's like, fuck you, I'm out of here. Like, you are totally riding with him at that moment. And even now, having seen this movie dozens of times over the years, like I always know like what the dark turn is going to be, but I always feel it because I think of the things that man adds to this compared to like, say what is in LA takedown, 
it's like I remember back in the day, a bunch of people being like, I don't understand why the Dennis Haysbert storyline is in there or whatever. And it's like, no, this is actually one of the few things that has like legitimate heart outside of just mm-hmm. the the bromance between De Niro and Pacino. And like, yes, it's kind of dropped into the story in a slightly awkward way. But Haysbert and, and the actress who plays his wife, they give those scenes a humanity that like almost like a good chunk of this movie just does not have. It is a movie that is very much obsessed with cool and technicality and, you know, like sort of just vibes throughout. But mm-hmm. that is like a real good human story. And like the way Haysbert plays it throughout, I think, is like what makes that a success and why I think it's great that they did not cut that out of the movie. Because you could easily see a lot of those scenes being the thing that like a studio would balk out and say, just put it on the DVD, whatever. No, and I think one of the things that's like really great about uh, Haysbert's whole arc uh, is that like, yes, we know it's inevitable. Like yeah. we, 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 you know, we understand the way fiction works enough to know this is what, this is the only possible arc for Haysbert's character. But it, it's the one, it's one of the few things in the movie that doesn't feel like it's accepted. It's inevitability. Right. Like, you know, with, with De Niro and, mm-hmm. and Pacino, both of them are so like, they have played, they are playing two men who have accepted the inevitability of their lives and they're like, you know, their roles and what they're supposed to do. And like, they do it very well. And especially because I think at this point in their careers, they've kind of accepted their own inevitabilities. It really right. feels like um, as actors. And so, like, Haysbert's the only real place where it feels like there is a kind of like something could have gone differently and just pivoted off and he would not have ended at this ending. Yeah. And just society just kind of stepped in and went, no, boom, this is not going to happen for you. It's, it's very much like there's that quality to Khan's performance in thief where like, yeah, he's a master thief. And also he is so clearly a guy desperate to just claw his way into a pretty normal middle-class life. Yeah. Right. Yeah. With like security. Straight and society, is, basically. Yeah. And that is palpable in every scene. And so, and by the time you get to this De Niro character, it is man in love with this portrait of himself in some ways, the master technician, the the, the dedicated craftsman. Um, but he's now being played so cool that he seems now, yeah, like divorced from those kind of like that level of humanity, those concerns. And he accesses it through a, a bit through Edie, but I think you're right. Like Haysbert's still there as somebody who's like, I keep getting backed into these situations, right? Like, like, like something went wrong years ago. And that thing basically being America, uh, yeah. and I can't get out. And that's Khan's story, right? It's, you know, mm-hmm. his, his, like in thief is, his character. This is what I was who, good at. And this is the life I found myself in. And once you're in that life it is extremely difficult to extricate yourself from it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I, and so I do think like that is, that is a plot beat that, that sticks with me because I, I do agree. Like they, like there is such a, formal mirroring of De Niro and Pacino in this that like both of them are operating on a more like heroic level in some mm-hmm. ways. Uh, they feel superhuman compared to just about every other character in mm-hmm. this movie. Yeah. Um, one, one other huge upgrade though. I think that like one of the other things that 
uh, sticks with me here is Wayne Grow is recast and becomes a more like he's pivotal in terms of like how the plot unfolds in LA takedown, but like he is pivotal as a character in but the character has no texture in, in LA takedown. Like he's right. just a guy who thinks too much of himself and there's no real sense of who he is other than a guy with an inflated sense of importance. Well, it's funny cause he's a TV character. Yeah. He's not a movie character. Like he's very much like, Oh, this is the guy who shows up as like, you know, maybe like a three episode arc villain that kind of, you know, pops his head around the corner every now right. and then. There's, right. There's an episode in season two called Wayne grow returns. Right. Um, and like, and like Kevin Gage is kind of that kind of actor too. <laughs> yes. But he finds this gear with this performance and this energy with this performance. And it's, it's such a new, like, it's, it's literally the de- gravitational difference between the gravity on Pluto and the gravity on the sun. Like yeah. it is, it could not be more disparate. <laughs> well, and the weird thing too is like, I think this is another thing like I think ages well in this film is I, I think. So, you know, you alluded to Buffalo Bill being a character. And we've seen man, uh, you know, Manhunter uh, at this point, but I do feel like man is also tapping into, you know, a type of, broken American manhood and like white male rage Mm -hmm. that is, you know, there is, there's an alarm. There's something alarming that man is seeing at this point. Not that this is a new archetype in American life, but like this is far and away, like the scariest character in this film. And the other crooks are all scared of him too. And part of it is that he is, when they talk about that, do you see me holding up liquor stores with a born to lose tattoo that they're describing Wayne grow. He is the sort of cowboy who is like, does kind of want to go out uh, in what he thinks will be a blaze of glory in some ways. But also we're talking about like the, the themes of like loneliness and alienation. I think one of the things that gauge taps into early, the thing that sort of like starts the countdown in his head before, you know, like, the massacres, the mayhem, uh, the serial killings is he's basically a guy trying to find buddies with this job. He's trying to make friends with he's he's trying to he find is, a crew. Yeah, he's contracting in with this crew and he's like he wants regular work, but also he kind of wants to like get in tight with a crew uh, right. somehow. And like his vibes are just off. None of them like him. Uh, yeah, Sizemore has no patience him. for him. Yeah, yeah. Tom uh, Sizemore has no patience for you. That's how that's how unpleasant and just miserable your presence is. And you can see like the hurt when Sizemore's like, "Do me a favor, Slick. Shut the fuck up. Stop talking." Yeah. Um, you can see the hurt there, yeah. but also you can also see immediately like the little bit of like rage descending. Right. It starts bubbling. Yeah. And it never stops for the rest of the film. And I I think this is one of the other parts of this is, you know, we see, you know, we see through both like Hannah and, um, and and Kali sort of a loneliness and alienation that comes from being dedicated to a vocation and Mm -hmm. also being like, being someone with a craft in a society where like generally people don't have a craft anymore. They don't like 
take life or themselves or a vocation seriously in that way. And that sort of sets them apart. But then also through Wangro, you also have this like alternate view of, well, also there is now a growing deeply entitled and very pissed off, uh, like class of class of dude as well. Yeah. Uh, who is like kind of sl- like he is another type of character slipping through the cracks of the society until like he, you know, blooms basically into, uh, an absolute monster. Yeah. Like, Man talks a little bit about this on the commentary, specifically talking about the fact that, like, the guys in the crew are very clearly all sociopaths to some degree. Like, they are, they obviously have attachments in their lives, especially, you know, Val Kilmer's uh, Chris Sherless and uh, Tom Sizemore character. They all have families, you know, they, and, and Danny Trejo has a wife. But, like, the second anyone threatens one of them, any innocent person is effectively forfeit. You know, if they're in the way, they will go down. It does not matter to them. The only people that matter to them in their lives are the ones that are closest to them. And in the case of De Niro, he's all but excised that until he meets Amy Brenneman's character. Wayne Grow is the kind of guy that those guys would have avoided in prison. Like, yep. those are guys that got through prison mostly by keeping to themselves, keeping their head down, and just thinking about the moves they were going to make when they got out. That was it. Wayne is the kind of dude that would very gleefully, let's say, join up with a white supremacist gang yep. to protect himself, to make himself feel bigger, to give himself some station in the, you know, the the hierarchy of prison. So we end up seeing him with this gigantic swastika tattoo on his chest. And it's never actually explicitly clear whether he is a practicing Nazi or he did that explicitly just to, you know, because he's part of a gang in prison. It doesn't really matter. Because in the end, he's still just kind of evil incarnate. He does. He is a pure psychopath. He does not have any regard for anyone. And he's more than happy to serial murder sex workers in his off time to make himself feel better. Yeah. And like in that scene, also, the thing that always sticks with me is the fact that um, like the the woman he kills, um, the fact that she's a black woman. He mm-hmm. says he's sitting there in the With hotel. that Nazi tattoo just fully splayed out. And she's completely unfazed. She yeah. has to be. And like you see her like she is used to navigating this type of situation is it is a normal day at work until abruptly it is not. I think about that a lot too where like that is a character where you can sort of see um the risks a person is forced to run. And mm-hmm. accept just as the cost of like staying alive and doing business in this in this world, and the fact that like can't take evasive action uh, because uh, like this this comes with the territory. This risk comes with the territory, and like by the time you identify that like this one is not like the others, it's too yeah. late. And, like it's it's uh it's a horrible scene in part because like you know what's coming, you can see. Wayne girl building up to it, but also you can sense like, I always feel like that scene's well executed because you're very much sort of in it with her as she tries to like massage his ego and navigate. Like, how do we keep this guy from like boiling over? And then like, okay, how, how do I get out of this room? And you know, she can't, um, but it is like, it is a scene that I think in LA takedown, 
it's a very tossed off scene mm-hmm. and it is uh, it's also and I'm not, order I'm not in LA takedown what it's out of order, order. like they yeah. do the scene yeah. with the mother before they show the scene with him and the sex worker yeah another another very weird uh yeah. choice but yeah it's but like and I'm not going to say like man like you know, sometimes man has a surprisingly progressive feminist lens on this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that I'm racking my brains to remember if uh, the sex worker has a name is, uh, you know, is 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 one factor here. Um, but I will say it is. There are a lot of movies like man has made them uh, where people just sort of show up as murdered bodies. Um, and like kind of like stripped of their humanity. I think some of that, some of the values that animate Manhunter are here as well, which is that like, nope, these are lives. These are people. And they're not just like built to be victims in these stories. Like he tries to get at something about like the nature of this work and like what it means for a character like Wayne grow to enter society. Yeah. And I don't know if, I mean, the ongoing joke about this movie is that you know it's a dude's rock movie and part of that is that the women characters in general do not fare well in this story and that is some of it is by design some of it is by the fact that i just don't think that michael mann has a particularly good focus here on what he wants his women to be in this movie outside of again the man thing of these are complicating factors in these intense men's lives You know, I think the one character who does avail herself in a way beyond kind of the scope of maybe what the script gave her is actually Judd as uh, Christian Harris's wife. Like what's on paper there is not particularly detailed. You know, she's having an affair. She doesn't like his gambling addiction. She's pissed off, you know, and at some point she has to decide whether she's going to betray him or not. But I think she as an actress gives that part more gravity and a more emotion then I think what some of these other actresses are kind of able to do with the material they're given because as much as like Diane Verona as, you know, Al Pacino's wife in this is, I think, a better sketched character than the one that they gave him in L.A. Takedown. She is also a caricature of a sort of zoned out upper middle class, you know, single parent mom of that era, the Xanax and, and you know, and grass kind of mom. And... I think her and Pacino have some very good scenes together, mm-hmm. but they the character never fully evolves beyond just sort of the eventual realization that this shit ain't going to work. Well, she's still and an like, appendage to Hannah. Yes, like, exactly. And the Natalie Portman character also is, I think, I think is maybe the one that going as I kind of sat there trying to like kind of think about this movie. She's not a character. She's a concept. Like yeah. she is. She is a notion of what a troubled teen in that era, a divorce, a child of divorce, and you know, a kid with probably an anxiety disorder, what what she would be. But there isn't much for her to do with that other than be very freaked out and very sad and eventually try to kill herself in just about the most melodramatic way possible. And Natalie Portman, you know, I mean, I'm up and down on her acting, but I do like some of her performances very much. There's just nothing here for her to work with other than to just embody this concept. Yeah. I, 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 especially the ending of that where like, he's, you know, the, the good responsible parent in some ways like this. Well, she makes the point of like going to his space to like, right. Cut her wrists, uh, and sort of make the, make the point that like, 
Um, you know, as as Diane as Diane points out, uh, you know that it is. You know, she chose you in the end, right? That like she ma- she makes this point uh, in this in this way. But yeah, I'm I'm like, I think Pacino wrestling with what he's supposed to do in this situation is effective. Like his portrayal yes. is like, what is my what is my place here? But I don't think the fan. You're right. The family dynamics are really a series of like broad archetypal sketches. Mm-hmm. Um like culminating in the scene where their marriage like finally uh like just the marriage with Justine finally and completely collapses with her with making that absurd I had to demean myself with uh Ralph Ralph <laughs> in order Ralph. to get closure. And it's like I love this scene because it's like it's bad. It is bad. But there is a gleeful wine mom energy to the entire scene that oh, like, she's thumbing her nose and at him like just saying like hey yeah check it out i could have tried to hide this from you but i don't even feel the need to anymore well, this is like you know you got cucked by xander berkeley playing ralph yeah like original <laughs> wangro here you God. go <laughs> like, I got this, and, and like it's really like it's funny because you know, Xander Berkeley's actually really perfect as Ralph. <laughs> like, this is like some of the best like work in this movie is like Xander Berkeley just like bringing the same energy he brought to like the dad from Terminator, the the uh, the the foster dad from Terminator Two. Yes, yes, the kind of scumbag, but not overly scumbag, just kind of a dirtbag, like a dirtbag that would be down your street. He's just like sitting on his ass. Like he, he just like, you know, he just banged someone's wife and now he's like sitting on this couch, just kind of watching television, just like mm-hmm. lounging. It's great. It's just, it is. It's his, so good. His like bafflement to see Pacino show up <laughs> uh, throughout funny. that scene. And it's, and again, like this, the scene was, done in in um in crime story but it is so funny the way pacino's like no no stay here ralph make yourself comfortable sit down (laughs) it's so good and it's like i don't mind you banging my wife but i'll be damned and just ripping the tv off the console it's great oh it's so good he doesn't know that that crt is going to be valuable someday oh man (laughs) Uh, uh, if only he knew about the color reproduction uh, yeah. and the refresh rates. Um, the the other thing I I kind of dig here as well. It, uh, I think it's not sketched out at all in like take time. But we're talking about like, the 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 broader lens here. Uh, I really do think that like in a lot of man's work, there's this dread. Like you'd say, it's of capitalism writ large, but I think genuinely it's about a couple like very specific types that appear in capitalism, and one of them is like the middleman, like mm-hmm. the person profiting off like the other the risk other people are running, the guy who is the you know the point of exchange between the person doing the work and the market their goods are ultimately being sold on, and like. He is not, it is not a major role. He is an easy character to forget in this story. He doesn't get much screen time, but everything, as much as Wayne Grow is like kind of the fulcrum of the story, um, like William Fickner's uh, Van Zant is also like the point where all of this goes wrong 
because he is like in Thief, he's a big time fence. Yeah. And what launches like what dooms De Niro's crew is one, they fail to kill Wayne Grow um when they when they have the chance, but two, that they take umbrage at Van Zant's attempt to slaughter them and like steal their cut of the first job. Yeah. And because he tries to rip them off and it fails and they're like, we got a great scene, you know, I'm talking, I'm talking to a dead man. Mm-hmm. Um, he realizes that like, it's just a matter of time before this crew like comes against him. And so he makes it his business to find a way to strike at them first. And Wayne Grow is the person who sort of shows up and makes that possible. But the thing that like sets it all in motion is the fact this is a guy who, you know, to, to borrow uh, a bit from like Miller's crossing. He's not, he's not content with the honest money he can make off the VIG. Yeah. Right. He's got to, he's got to take it all. He has to, he, he cannot, he can't help himself. Even though it's a really skilled crew, there's more money on the table probably down the road. Doesn't matter. Uh, it is like he wants to rip them off when he has the opportunity. And then when it goes bad, he is like pure vindict- vindictiveness and fear. Yeah. Um, and so I think like without calling too much attention to it, like he's not a, he's not a major character in this story, but like lurking in the background of this is like, De Niro's crew is kind of doomed by the fact that they have to deal with people like that. Yes. Uh, that like in a lot of ways he's, you know, he's, he's kin to the diner owner, right? That there's, there's always somebody, uh, you know, with his trying to get his foot on the throat of the guys working for him. Yeah. I mean, the ruth the ruthlessness of the William Fechner character is in the math. Like, he's clearly a numbers guy. He's a Cayman Islands, you know, t- style, like, you know, financial type dude. And his whole thing is just like he runs the numbers like, well, if I deal with these guys, then people will think that uh, it's easy to rip me off. So fucking kill him. You know, he doesn't really think about it, like the consequences of that. If it goes wrong, he's just like, nope, can't ha- can't have this affect the business. So I got to do this. I think. For me, apart from the very obvious lead actor and the scenes that come along with them upgrades uh, you get with De Niro and Pacino, uh, I think the addition of Fickner's character is probably the single best addition that comes to this this script. One, because it sort of gives a much better runway for the eventual Wayne Grove betrayal than what the, mm-hmm. t- the L.A. takedown version was. But two, Fickner is just good. Like, he's just slimy as shit. He's, he's very so good in this good. part. And like he's so good. He's he's one of my favorite character actors. And there's, there's like one of the things I like about Fickner in this role and like this fan then is that he is, you know, again, there's the inevitability. He's convinced of his own inevitability, though. And it's not like yeah. Fickner doesn't think anything of just like sending Henry Rollins who fucking Henry Rollins as his like, yes, man. What? See, you did the thing that Michael Mann does on the commentary multiple times throughout this. Like, usually when he talks about a performance in that in this movie, he's like gives a little detail, a little story, something, whatever. Two or three times when Henry Rollins appears on screen, he just goes, "There's Henry Rollins," and then nothing after that. Like, no, like he does what everyone else does when Henry Rollins shows up in a movie and just says, "Ah, there's Henry Rollins." He has no thoughts beyond that. It's it's so it's it's very it's a very weird thing because yes. Um, but like 
when with Fickner is like, you know, he's like, he, he calls, he, he knows that he's like, okay, oh, like, go kill these guys. He's yeah. used to telling people to do things and it just happening. And so like, and um, never suffering even one consequence. Yeah. Um, and so like, you know, but then like, there's that moment when De Niro shows up at like, you know, he's like there and he's like surrounded by his giant floor to ceiling plate glass windows. And he's like having a drink and he's just chilling out. And then the, fear that Fickner has when he realizes that oh no I'm not inevitable and I I am going yep. to die now is fucking great I should not have left my office fuck yeah it's like it's so good well and like and, and you have, the, to have those wait. weird iguana eyes that William Fickner has in order to yes. play that 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 kind of like you know terror well I think to that point uh you mentioned earlier Dia about like the way he likes to situate characters in this type of like glass box architecture in some ways. I think something that crops up here and a lot of pictures too, is like the sort of the view of the masters of the universe character looks like a commanding, like, uh, like, you know, all, all powerful, all seeing view until you realize that's also a deeply vulnerable one. Right. Mm-hmm. Like the, the realization that he has when he realizes like the plate glass, like he is the fish in the, he is the fish in the aquarium. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That like, and he's about to drown. Yeah. And like, there's a, there's a similar sort of shot in, um you know, in, in Miami vice, but that, that sense of your, like, it's exactly that. Like that is a, is a, is a place where he's often contemplated his own mm-hmm. inevitability. And then there's that realization of like, I can't see something is out there and I can't see it like this. It's opaque to me now. Right. Um, but it's, it's not too, it's not too De Niro. Um, but, but like that is such a, that is such a part of this where like you, you have in the background sort of these, these characters who simply because of like, their kind of casual greed and viciousness uh, and just sort of reflexive need to screw people over in a deal will do like massive and incredible harm. And the fan, one of the fantasies of heat is that you could get at that guy, right? right? Like this is in man movies pretty much across the board. I think one of the other fantasies is like, you could just go to these people's houses and you kill them. Mm-hmm. You find them and you could kill them. Like happens in thief happens here. Uh, happen like happens in Black Hat. Like this is this is a huge part of the fantasy. Is like you realize like oh man like my tormentor is the guy with the capital and I know where he lives and I got nothing to lose. So I guess the real question is who does Michael Mann actually want to kill? We'll never find out. He'll never tell us. But <laughs> I mean, someone out there, someone in a big glass house has wronged him and he has been getting it out through screenplays. Feel like we'll have to we'll have to go back through like okay which which uh, major studio producers do you never work with uh, mm-hmm. more than more than once, uh, but but yeah I mean that like and all that stuff is sort of in the background of the 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 story, um, I think when we turn to when we turn to like. The respective crews themselves, I think something I regret a bit is that I always feel like I have a very good sense for 
uh, Macaulay's crew. Mm -hmm. And as much as I love the cast of actors that make up Hannah's like detective squad, like it is a, it is a killer cast like McKelty Williamson, Wes Studi, Ted Levine, another guy, the one guy that no one remembers the name of. There's another guy. Oh, sure. There's a younger guy. He's the one who gets shot but not killed, and like he shows up later, like with a cast on. But oh, I, man. I don't know that actor, and I've, I don't know if I've ever seen him anything since. Should have been him and not Ted Levine. Yeah. Um, but I think that's that's part of his. Like, I think a bit of like unfinished work here is the way that I think the attempt to mirror not just Hannah and uh, Macaulay, but also their respective crews. I think it quite comes off here like this the the scene of like man is this crew good or what this crew is good mm-hmm. and like now that now the two crews are observing each other uh it still feels like i know a lot about macaulay's gang and i will never stop thinking of every detective in hannah's squad as their actors or as like their other roles right sure. like it's very hard for me not not to think like all right mog what's down to you now go get him but yeah. like and they it, gave, but they also gave, it's like they gave magua an assault rifle in this one at least so you know he's got something to do but also on the same thing it's like it's a bit squandered uh a little bit like it's and it, that happens with big ensemble casts like this but i think it's it's part like part of i think his like going back to crime story man loves this notion of like, well, the, the cops are a gang too. Mm-hmm. And here I don't think it, it comes across. It's like alluded to, but I, I don't think it, it, it comes across. You know, cause Ted Levine's Mike Bosco is handled much better by Ted Levine and the alienist. Ted Levine's not seen alienist? the alienist yet. Yeah. Wait, he's not Teddy Roosevelt, is he? No. Um, okay. he's, he's a cop. Okay. okay. Watch the aliens. Yeah. It was actually pretty okay. But like, yeah, like he he's just like watching it. I was just like, oh, that's Ted Levine with the exact same, like f- doing the exact same thing that he did in The Alienist, which I watched before this because I don't exist in chronology. Like mm-hmm. it was just, like, Wes Duty is in this and it's just like, why is Wes Duty in this? It's just because you knew him. Like he, yeah. he happened to be available and you're like, you know, whatever. I mean, I think that's the answer for a lot of these castings, especially on the cop side, is that these are actors he likes and he just wanted to put them in the movie somewhere. Like, West Duty's character is not well-defined. Michael D. Williams is, like, a little bit more, but not much. And, you know, Ted Levine might as well just be his dude from Monk. Like, you, you don't really have know enough <laughs> about his character to get a, a real picture of them. The only time you really kind of get any of that is in that scene where they're mirroring the two dinners. You know, the one mm-hmm. where they're... The yes. crew is out and they're having their big, you know, kind of like banquet feast before the next score. And then the one where the, you know, the cops are out kind of out dancing, having a good time. But of course, Al Pacino gets called away because, you know, the violence of the world pulls him away at every turn. But there really isn't much there for the other characters. Like that scene is all about Al Pacino and his wife and him sort of being pulled away yet again. Whereas I think with the crew, you kind of get a little bit of flavor there. You kind of see what, my, you know, Michael Chirino's life is like. You kind of see what, you know, Ashley Judd, how she interacts with the rest of that crew. Danny Trejo does not have a lot to do in this movie, but, you know, he's there and his wife is there. And his El Camino is there. His El Camino is there. Yes. (laughs) 
They did an actor so magnetic they renamed the character to just the I actor's know, it's last so name. Great. Who won well, that? And he wasn't. He wasn't like at this point. That's not like. Hey, that's Danny Trejo. Like, no, he'd been in like a couple of things before yeah, this, but not. Much. But they just yeah, they do the thing where yeah, they they give they they name the character uh, after the actor. It's it's great. I think something else though is that the relationship isn't mirrored because in some ways like. Or maybe the mirroring operates on different lines. We see Hannah sort of oblivious to what's happening at, at home, sort of oblivious to like the way and speed at which his relationship is unraveling. And meanwhile, you've got Macaulay, who is keenly attuned to the inner lives of his crew, particularly to uh, Shaharless, uh, Val Kilmer, and like playing the role of like marriage counselor. And like best friend. And I think to your point about like they're all a bunch of like sociopaths whose intimacy is, is reserved for like everyone in their circle. Mm-hmm. But like in this weird way with like Macaulay, there's this like I always I can never work out because like De Niro plays him as kind of a brusque cold fish, even when he's trying to be like compassionate and like a stand up guy for people. But like he walks this line with um with Charlene and Chris where like he's trying to like help them. And like he's, he is trying to be a buffer between like the fact that uh, Chris is a violent, like abuser Mm -hmm. um, when like when he's drunk uh, or when he's feeling vindictive. Um, But at the same time, he's also trying to be like supportive of both of them, but also it all has this cast of, is he doing this because like, you know, it's the family or mm-hmm. is he doing it because he needs to make sure the crew is re- like everybody's locked in and focused. And if that means he has to go like be dad in this like fucked up marriage, he will go do that because this is how like this is part of this is as much a tool as the shit he's using to cut like cut through safes. Yeah. I think I'd lean more toward the latter. Like there is definitely an affection there, but everything he does, every move he makes around, you know, his crew, his friends is about making sure the crew is working at optimal efficiency, you know, and you know, the few times when he kind of lets that mass slip, like, you know, once the heat is on them and he's debating whether they should even do the big bank job, you know, he kind of says to uh, Chirino, he says to him, like, you know, you should walk away. You've got you've got savings. You know, you got investments. You got a life outside this stuff already. You should not do this because it's going to be fucking dangerous and it's going to it's going to mess you up. And he's, I think he's doing it because ultimately he's saying there's no way this heist is going to work unless we are all in and we are all working, firing on all cylinders and one person not being there. That just does that redoes the calculus for him. And he's like, OK, we walk away. That's it. That's the end of it. Doesn't matter. You know, so I think in the end, it is all in service of making sure that the jobs that they are planning to do will go the exact way they need to go, because I think in the end, he would still walk out on any one of them in 30 seconds flat if it came down to it. Yeah, Um, though, up to a point, right, because like part of it is also the honor code thing kicks in where there's there's the weird dynamic of. He won't leave Shaharless behind, but like once Chirito gets mired on the other side of the street, 
Um, you know, it's every man for himself. Yeah. Uh, good luck. I'm going to leave you to your fate. Um, but like, ultimately, like this is going to hinge on the fact that somebody did this to his crew and that has to be avenged that like right. he could walk away. There's money like he his escape is in place, but he cannot. He can't let what happened to his crew and to Trejo like lie. He can't. He can't let that be and like take that else. So he has to. He has to go and 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 settle up accounts uh, before he can escape. And so I think like I, that's that's another part of this is is Macaulay. You know, Macaulay gives his statement of purpose his sort of statement of his philosophy in the diner scene mm-hmm. uh you know that's that's the discipline um and i wonder if like in a lot of ways this is a like portrait of a character who is like sort of from beginning to end kind of kidding himself that like the attachments are all around him he just doesn't know it he doesn't see the ways that like he's already bound to people and two values mm-hmm. uh, that no longer like that, that, that can't be defended pragmatically. Um, and so to an extent now he is a guy who is honoring these values more in the uh, breach than, than in the observance. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. I think, but at the same time, like the whole thing with Edie, the, the Amy Brenneman character is him testing the waters in a way that he seemingly has not, at least in his, you know, larger criminal lifespan career to see what it would be like if he were to try and add that element to his life, whether it makes sense or not. Because I think in the end, when it comes to his crew, like he would never roll over on them. But at the same time, if it felt like if they had to split ways and never speak again, they would just do it because that is the right thing for them to do. He can find a way to detach himself from those kinds of attachments because in the end, it's about the business. That's what how that dynamic works. And, you know, when Shaharis takes off, like, he's a little put off by it. But he's like, whatever, he can take care of himself. He's an adult. We'll deal. But the Amy Brenneman thing is where, you know, it kind of starts, uh, you know, morphing a little bit. Like, the discipline kind of starts to come unraveled a little bit. And, you know, whether you believe that relationship is fully believable or not. I was going to ask. <laughs> so... Amy Brennan. It's better than LA Takedown. Much better. Much better actress. She is a very sweet, comes across a very sweet woman. You can kind of understand why someone would would fall for her. She has a very, you know, down home kind of presentation here that well, I think she's is. She's the Appalachian gal that went to Parsons and then ended up in LA doing album covers for 4AD and Sub Pop. Mm-hmm. She is uh, she is every graphic designer's dream in that uh, eventually Robert De Niro will fall in love with you for some reason. Um, I don't know that I still buy the full dynamic, at least as it is portrayed here. I think I think they make it work better. The scene where she kind of pulls away from him at the end, but then ultimately makes the decision like, fuck it. Let's just dive into this life of crime. <laughs> is a little harried in a way that is maybe not completely believable. But at the same time, like it's the thing it's good I, setup for what comes after. I was gonna say the thing that I like about that is that like she really does like, you know, finally just like there's like this like, you know, you like the switch in her head flips and she's like all in on it. And then at the end, 
when she's like, you know, all of the, the, the cops and the ambulance and everything are all going off around her. And she's just standing there at the car door, just like with her mouth, like comically, like, you know, hanging down, just kind of like hunched over arms at her side. She's like, what's happened to me? Where are it you is, going? It is Why one of the I- great unspoken. How could you <laughs> in so cinema? Beautiful. It's great. And the, the bit before that, too, where like in, when they're just driving and they're going through that tunnel and just, you know, like before De Niro makes the decision that he's going to go get Wayne Grow, the wide eyed sort of innocent like, oh, is this my new life now? And she's looking out the car window like it's it's like a dog that just knows just got a new home. <laughs> like, it is like it's like it's an excited puppy of like, oh, am I a criminal now? Is that what I am? Am I going to my forever crime life? Like it's it's really <laughs> funny, even if it's maybe not necessarily meant to be. But it's like, again, it's great setup for what comes after, which is that slack jawed. I can't believe this is fucking happening to me moment outside the hotel. I was like, <laughs> am I wrong? <laughs> no, because that puppy dog quality is what sells it too. Yes. Like mm-hmm. it one, it helps that he does not, he does not go as hard in their meat cute as they do in LA takedown. Yes, he does not come off as like, like immediately God. like, Oh, you are a violent sociopath. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Where he's just, he's a bit of a prick and like, she's so obviously like kind of wounded by that. Yeah. Um, and for to be fair, that is Southern style friendliness like she is not like that is that is a person who was raised in the south would totally just try to strike up a conversation with a person at a diner counter like that an la person would not like you know routinely at like you know the store that they work at like yeah that that totally tracks yeah right and and the way that sort of like shames him a little bit like he feels guilty he feels like he's like okay i'm i'm sorry like let's like yeah let's let's (laughs) chat and like that, that energy sort of does sustain the relate. The thing that has to sell it is the fact that she has this like sweet puppy dog demeanor, um, which at least is is a note that just doesn't exist in in takedown. It just doesn't like nothing no. in takedown is convincing. The fact that like he's like we know he's over the moon about her because he tells us I'm over the moon about her. He tells his fence man. I got I got something to steal for now. But that Which, woman just mostly comes off as like peevish throughout yeah. LA Takedown. Like there is not really like a sweetness or like a, an identifiable characteristic that is like, oh, I can understand why these two people fell in love. Like, God, no. Here, at least, that kind of, you know, down-home Southern friendliness, that warmth that is sort of completely alien to what a Robert De Niro character would normally have experienced, especially, you know, going through prison as many times as he did. You could see how that would disarm him from the jump, whether or not they would go through this whirlwind romance. I don't know, but like you can at least see like the nugget, like you can see where the wheels click and it's like, Oh, I could talk to this person. Something I, I often sort of think about in their relationship, too, is the the way that you almost sort of see it. I don't know if I'm just reading into this, but like. She is a character that is easy to see as unworldly and in some ways, like. Not necessarily like in need of a relationship, but like could benefit from like someone to protect her. Right. Right. 
that's not really necessarily true. Like she's got a good career. Um, like she's lonely, but like she's got everyone a in this movie's fucking lonely. house in 1995 yeah, she's terms. Crushing like, Jesus. But you can easily imagine where like someone like De Niro, much like Khan, sort of has this notion of like what does a person like you think is going to happen to you in a world like this without mm-hmm. someone like me? And the answer is nothing nearly as bad as what happened from getting involved with you. <laughs> like, uh, like that, you know, you are the disaster happening to this woman's life. Like the, right. the bad thing coming true is you, Neil, you're the thing. You are the thing she will be spending the next two decades talking about in therapy. <laughs> yep. Yep. She will never go near whatever that hotel chain is again in her life because she is just never going to be able to get over that. Yeah. Uh, So one other part of this, like. Confession time, I think. The thing that like won me over to man, though, the thing that won me over to this film, like started me on this, like, man, I love Michael Mann. Man, I love this shootout. Like, oh, yeah. I love the bank shootout long before I fully grokked what this whole movie was about. And like the the like appreciated the various subplots and everything. I just love the fact that this was the most balls to the wall, like gunfight I've ever I'd ever seen. And like still to this day kind of is, which is weird. Like there have been a lot of movies that tried to do the heat thing there's a lot more like several dozen times over yeah yeah there's a lot of movies that like trying to embrace the gun porn aspect of it too and i don't think they pull it off there's something is it for me i'm not i try to figure out like part of it is um michael mann whoever he works with for like the the attention his film pay to sound is really striking like the fact that like Every single part of the the fucking gunfight is really articulated uh, in the in the mix. Like you hear the the brass, uh, you know, hitting hitting the pavement. Uh, you hear the reports sort of echoing along the uh, like urban canyon walls. Uh, it's it's incredible stuff. But but also the more I watch it, the more I think I'm not sure an actor has ever looked better carrying an assault rifle than Val Kilmer. You might be I'm not right. sure I am not sure an actor has ever done a better job like firing one of those things off in a gun in a gunfight than Val Kilmer. Like everyone else looks like they got some weapons training and they're like, you know, they're acting, right? Yeah. They're 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 playing their scene. Pacino actually looks uncomfortable with his gun. And I think part of that is like unlike Macaulay's gang. He can't just like open fire wildly into the crowd, which is what no. they're doing. Like they're, you know, you you hear Pacino be like, "Watch your backdrops." Try, you know, try to like, don't just like if there's people behind them, don't shoot at them. Uh, whereas you know, Macaulay's crew doesn't have to worry about that. But uh, yeah, Val Kilmer looks like a guy who has made it his business to just mow through an entire division of LAPD officers. Well, it's it's the the blonde ponytail 90s wig that really is what sells that. Yeah. Um, God, his hair is majestic in this movie, I have to say. Even apart from the gun parts, like just that Val Kilmer's hair. When he loses it at the end, you like you can feel like a part of him is just gone. The hair represents Charlene. 
And once the hair is gone, True. she's gone too. God. Oh man, when these when they lock eyes, the end of the film, and his power is just lost. Yeah. Now he's just now he's just he might as well be Ralph. Yeah. Oh, just a shitty axe. You're that, right. Sorry, go ahead, Dia. Oh no, go ahead. I was um, just gonna say, like, the thing about this scene is, you know, the obvious quality of it is the audio. Like, that's this. This is the movie since the DVD era. I have always used that scene to. Yep. Tune whatever speaker set I am adding to whatever I have at home. It's that in the the opening action scene from Predator. And, you know, it works every time. They made the choice to not ADR much of anything and just use the ambient audio from when they were shooting. And that is maybe the single best audio choice just about any American filmmaker has ever made because it is enveloping and just like incredibly loud and caustic and just just unsettling the way it, it is echoing off the walls of those those downtown LA buildings buildings I've walked by many times yep. as I've gone to E3 over the years and you know it's it the, it's the precision also with which they just immediately go into battle tactics mode and the way that they are willing to just sort of you know, like there's, you see a little bit of it in the scene when uh, Van Zant's crew betrays De Niro when he just starts firing that pistol at the windshield of his car. Like he does that again here. He just immediately starts firing the assault rifle outside the window, straight at the cop cars that he sees in the far, pretty far in the middle distance. Because again, he does not care. He just wants to make sure that he is putting down fire and that he is stopping anyone from advancing upon them. And just the way they go through the motions of this stuff. The way it, it just, you know, they immediately like turn like they clearly have rehearsed this dozens of times turning back, know exactly when to turn back and fire behind them. Like it's uh, just so efficient. I remember on one heat minute, I think they interviewed some of the uh, coordinators uh, for the for the scene uh, and some of the editors. And like, you know, one of the things that come up, comes up is like. Again, Val Kilmer really was just that guy uh, mm -hmm. that like the technical advisors were just like. So proud of him for that magazine switch he does uh, in the middle, which is like it's it is up there with Tom Cruise in Collateral taking out those two like thugs that show up oh, in yeah. the alley. It is up there in terms of like rehearsed mechanical automatic precision all in one cut. Uh, and it's like, wow, that was incredibly smooth and fast. Like this is extremely violent. That was extremely graceful. Um, it is, it, it's, uh, it's a hell of a sequence. Um, and, and I think it, it benefits from the fact that like, I think a lot of movies that, that sort of crib from heat embrace the gun porn thing and completely like, it is the fact that like the gunfight has this context, right? Mm -hmm. That we care a lot about how this heist goes about like what the fallout from it is going to be. Um, I was thinking like, I, I cannot remember the fucking dog shit. Gerard Butler movie. I got like pushed into watching that. Somebody Which was like, one? It's, it's a lot like heat. Um, it ends with a huge gunfight on the highway. Okay, I don't know. I, I've seen a lot of dog shit. Gerard Butler movies over the years. So I can't I remember that, which I one. That's most of the oeuvre. Yeah. Um, but like, but there it was like, no, this is just a guns and ammo like porn scene, basically. And like you, you're, you're using a highway because you can get you can get an empty strip of highway, right? Like right. it's an easy set to like dress and use. Uh, but there's no there's nothing visually interesting happen. There's no sense of place. It is basically just like 
look at these macho dudes run around with like two thousand (laughs) dollar assault rifles with like attachments and shit yeah um and 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 so i i do think in in some ways like this is one of the all-time great gun battles in movies also inspired like just a raft of dog shit imitators who like lock in on the gun porn part of it and basically miss that like well they built a pretty good movie around it too yes well that's the thing is that like yes they're using incredibly intense hardware and you know they're utilizing these very specific battle tactics the thing the reason this scene works over other things that have tried to ape it is that like it's terrifying like yeah. the feeling of watching that scene is not one of like elation or titillation or excitement the way that you would in like say like you know some cheesy cat 3 hong kong action movie where it's literally just 80% people shooting guns like it's straight up like you if you were in that scene you would be the most afraid you've ever been in your life and no, it doesn't what, f- sorry go it, ahead oh i would say like yeah like to that point like i actually had to look up when was the north hollywood or the north hollywood shootout yes. Yeah, because I was like convinced. I'm like, I'm like, this is giving me like watching the North Hollywood shootout on like, you know, CNN vibes. Yeah, and, totally. And like, no, I was like, oh, shit, this came out two years before that happened. Fuck. Yeah. Um, But like, you know, it really captures like the terror of like people who are extremely proficient at killing people with, you know, hardware that's not like stylish and splashy but just designed to effectively kill other people to put bo- bullets in bodies and just going at it and then filmed as like, you know, kind of cinema verite as possible. Yeah. It puts you and in well, the thick of what happens when a militarized police department meets an incredibly well-armed, you know, criminal and every, yeah. anyone else is just caught in between. Well, I think it really, and I, I think, I think this scene would be, I think it would land really differently if it doesn't transition to the grocery store parking lot. Cause I think that is where it fully like hits you with like shades of like Sam Samuel Fuller, uh, Mm -hmm. like realism where it's like, Oh Christ. Like, and here's where I'm at in this story. I'm not one of the people running around looking fucking awesome with the assault rifle. I'm like one of the people just lying dead in the grocery store parking lot because like these guys came through. Yeah. And it's like yeah. a natural disaster just sweeping through. And like in the in the wake of that scene, there are so many people just like strewn in the background. And this and this comes to like it's easy to be seduced by the idea of like Macaulay's character and like, man, like, you know, it's almost a, so tragic these these two guys even had to like come into this conflict. You kind of wish you could get he could get away with it. But at the same time you see the scene and it's like this is also why you got to like why guys like this do have to be put down is because when you have people who do flip into that mode of like anyone between me and my goal, if I get my goal without killing anybody, it's fine. But if it is, if people are between me and my goal, then they're just dead yeah. and I will not think twice about it. And like that scene sort of drives that home and like it and it's it's doubly driven home by the fact that like Chirito as in LA State Town, like doubly damns himself by once he gets cut off, um, you know, his sort of rat in a cage moment. He grabs the the thing he thinks is going to be his ticket out of here, which is he can run around with a, with a kid uh, as a hostage and stay mobile and 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 try to try to make a break for it. And you do sort of realize that all the family man shit, all the tight crew, all the like their normal guys whose job is like violence 
Yeah, but their job is violence. This is like when the chips are down, this is who they are. It's Tom fucking Sizemore <laughs> holding a gun to a toddler's head. Yeah, and you know, like the part in the the diner scene when, you know, Al Pacino is like between you and a cop, you know, we're going to make a widow out of his wife, brother, you are going down. Like in that moment, you're like, oh, but I don't want it to be that way. You guys clearly have something here. I, I want the bromance to blossom. I want the, you guys to find a way through this somehow. You completely lose that by the time you get to that grocery store scene. And it's just like, oh, you're just mowing down innocence at this point. That is the moment when the movie finally flips completely over to it's not just two sides of the same coin. It's like, no, literally, say what you will about cops. In this case... The cops are the ones that are not going to indiscriminately mow down innocence. And so you have no choice but to kind of side with Pacino, who is in in the ultimate grand scheme of what the story they are telling here is the one who has been in the right more or less all along. Yeah, I think. Um, that's like no true Scotsman this. Uh, like, I think. Generally, man's films are pretty skeptical of cops, but he likes detectives. Yes. Is the he thing. likes people who solve things. Yeah. Which is which is the line that a lot of good like detective fiction like ends up walking where it's like, yes, as an institution, a lot of concerns about the cops, but we all love a good purpose driven, hyper competent yes. like crusader uh, who like does solve the crimes and like and, and, and gives a shit about this stuff. Um, and that is and and Pacino is is operating that in that mode, though I often do think about it is so laughable the idea these guys are allowed to do any more cop shit after that shootout. Seriously, like it's like no everybody here is like it's guns and badges time. Like go wait on suspension, but <laughs> so we can like publicly disgrace you in six months at a trial. Uh, because like the minute it emerges. You could have arrested these guys breaking into a safe two weeks earlier and you didn't because you didn't like the charge you'd be able to get them on. So you waited to catch them on something bigger. Um, and now 35 people are dead. Yeah. Like it is it's the most like, you know, Hannah's still like, we're going to find these guys. And it's like. Nope, Hannah's going to basically be under house arrest at this point, like mm -hmm. under a gag order from the chief. I mean, the police um, union will eventually help get him off, but you oh, know, yeah, it's going to sure. take a while. And yeah, like, again, I think the thing here is that they portray, I, I don't, I imagine this is not particularly accurate, but they portray the major crimes unit as almost sort of like being its own satellite thing that just sort of operates completely free of the, the you know, the restrictions of other police, you know, divisions, they never get into the politics of that at all. It is very much just like, no, these are the elite of the elite, and that's all you need to fucking know. And yeah. uh, so when you get to this, it's just kind of like, you just kind of have to accept that these guys are effectively above the law, whether that's realistic or not. So I want to talk about the ending. Mm -hmm. In particular, so one... Never see something like this filmed again. They're never going to let a film crew onto like they're never going to let people be running around a working runway at LAX with with guns and shit. 
uh, again, that's that's not gonna happen. Uh, no. So we get this in bullet, um, and we'll just have to like huddle around that to keep us warm. Um, but what do we make of the denouement here, and in particular, the musical choices made in this denouement? Hmm. Well, I just want to say before we get to that, uh, Michael Mann is a coward for not allowing this movie to also end with uh, Wayne Grow getting karate kicked out a window. Uh, that is, <laughs> that was one of the best artistic choices he ever made, and how dare he abandon that? Uh, that said, again, Michael Mann is a guy who I think is a lot like a lot of other dads I knew growing up, which is that he finds music randomly and with absolutely no real intention toward doing so. And I have to imagine someone passed him a Moby CD at some point. And for a couple of sweaty years, that was the thing he listened to exclusively before he found what the next thing was. And you're all familiar with the fact that there was, there was a different composition for this, right? No, I wasn't. Okay. So let's, let's pause and watch this with Elliot, Elliot Goldenthal's, uh, like, score for the scene uh that was cast aside for god moving over the face of the waters if you want if you want to know what that's like if you watch the film or you can find you can easily find the the moby ending to uh heat if you like but let's all take uh and and kind of maybe you can pipe in uh this this bit of this composition as well uh and let's take let's take a couple minutes and watch how the scene plays uh okay. with the orchestral soundtrack
Huh. I can't believe I'm in support of Moby being superior at anything. I can't either. Like, I'm kind of mad. It's, it's interesting because in the composition, you could almost imagine Michael Mann coming to Elliot Goldenthal with uh-huh. th- that song and saying, can you do something like this? <laughs> no, you definitely can. It's, it's, it's really uncanny that how much... Um, like I'm picturing Michael Mann driving him around, like in his car, like just like around, and just be like, you can, you can see it, right? You can see this, yeah. this, this, if you do this, do this. Like there's this something song. here. But then in I, the end, he goes with the Moby song, and I think it actually is better for it. I would agree. I think it is. I think it serves him as well as Prague ends up serving him in Miami Vice. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, this is it really all went bad once he got on the audio slave. Um, You know, it was he got he got that hit of audio slave and it was done. Um, But I, I, I do think the. I think the Moby. I mean, this is always one of the there's a lot of issues with Moby and there's a lot of knocks on Moby. But one one of them is always that he did have a really like almost coyly cinematic sensibility oh, yeah. to his music. But here it's like a perfect match between like his sensibilities and like the frankly like operatic uh, register that man is is operating within here. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a good. Ch- I I think in the end it is actually a good choice. It's uh, a better one than the uh, rocking Moby song they used when he's chasing him down the highway. Uh, but yeah, like I think it ties that scene together in a way that uh, this music does not. I just I I don't know. Like I I love that whole final sequence. I love them tracking each other through the airport. I love the way the lights of the runway are used to kind of sort of indicate kind of the big kind of just you know sort of dramatic beats of that scene and i can't i i honestly the only reason i have a moby or ever had a moby cd was because of this movie and that song like and that was what made me investigate what the hell moby was which i guess maybe i should be blaming more for than than praising (laughs) but it does work here I mean, I just think we should have brought back Answers Any New Bouton for the ending, personally. Mm. Which is like the soundtrack for this one, like the the the, the pieces that, that Michael Mann apparently just like had like in his like CD binder. Yeah. Just. Well. What? <laughs> and as we know, sometimes Mrs. Mann would hear stuff on the radio mm-hmm. and be like, I really like this song. You should maybe you know, put it in your movie. Why don't you put that in your little movie? Just yeah. handing him a copy of like the mirror pool by Lisa Gerard. Like, <laughs> uh, and then I, I think, you know, we have, we, we talked a little bit about the visual styling of the film, uh, you know, up front, but a lot is, you know, the, the final shot of this movie, uh, I guess discussed a lot. And I'm, I'm curious the, uh, uh, too on the nose or transcendent? Like, 
so to be clear, to describe it, it is the final shot of the film uh, where you have a <laughs> multiple chest wound, like dead De Niro lying on the left hand side of a widescreen uh, of, a, of a very wide format image uh, with the runway lights ascending up the uh, left side of the frame. And then on the darker half of the fra- uh, frame, uh, clasping De Niro's dead hand is uh, Pacino with his back to the camera staring into uh, the, the darkness of the, of the night. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like, like, do you, how do you, like, what's you, what, like, it certainly, <laughs> certainly does, uh, it, it certainly does put its meaning all the way out there. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's, it feels a little cloying, honestly. Um, it's one of those shots that like, you know, before the advent of one perfect shot, Mm-hmm. Like this is like the thing that like someone thought someone like it was like it's like this could be so perfect, man. This, we're gonna have this this one shot. It's gonna be so good. Um, and really, it's just like you know the the string of lights that like literally descend down into De Niro's body. Mm-hmm. Like it's just someone spent a lot of time figuring out this shot too. I, I mean, like that's the thing. Like I one of the things that I really like about this movie is that. Um, one, uh, it's just really nice seeing a movie that actually has like rich blacks and like yeah. <laughs> and makes advantage of them. Um, and then like, you know, also has like, you know, it wasn't shot in fucking log and then like, you know, color added later after the fact with horrible digital color grading, like every movie these days. Yeah. Um, so, so like you do get like the shootout scene, you know, the bank, the heist is very like dusty and it's mm-hmm. very muted yes. and it's like those very low contrast. And then when we get like this shot, it's all contrast. Like the shadows are completely blocked up. It's like zone one and zone nine and that's it. There's nothing mm-hmm. in between. And that's really, really good. So like, I wish like there's like these kind of, you know, these moments throughout it where just like, it's the kind of scene and you go, yeah, okay. You thought that would be a good shot. Uh huh. Yeah, I get it. Mm-hmm. I see why you did that. And then the kind of the ending shot is similar for me where it's just like, you've, you did so well with what everything else going up to this, this just feels kind of cheap to me. Yeah. I, it's a little, it's just, it's just so on the nose. It is on the nose. It's extremely on the nose. Alex, you had something else too. No, I, I, I right. didn't. I, I think Dia I, said most of what I wanted to say there. Just other than I, as much I, I do love this shot, but I also yeah. recognize that it is, while it may be the thing this movie has been building toward the entire time, it is also kind of corny. It is a little bit on the cheesy side. And, well, I, and, and I think in part of it is because like, I think, I think the opening shot is a better shot for, mm-hmm. for one thing. Yeah. I just, I, I think it's a, a, a more effective shot. Uh, it's truer to the film. And I think maybe that's the thing is it's a beautiful shot. I love the ending of this film. I, I, I have a soft spot for this shot, but I will say what in this film has laid the groundwork for the redemption of the soul of Neil McCauley 
uh, or the fact that like a soul has a place to ascend to. Like, I, I think like part, part of this is like, there is a real, like there's a very pointed religious overtone to this image and sort of a, uh, like redemptive, or sanctifying quality to the image. I mean, it has and that Renaissance so much painting quality. I was going to say, yeah. was like, this is one of those things where if you give me like, you know, an hour and a half with like my art history books, I could probably find the actual painting this is based on. Mm-hmm. Like it definitely, and I think it, it feels that way. And so much of this film is like, you know, and, and you, uh, you'd certainly make the case that like what maybe the image draws so much power fr- from this sort of contrast. But so much of this film is like, we are alone down here mm-hmm. like that, like, and you know, that's certainly where De Niro's half of the image, uh, you know, comes into play. But I think there's, there's something here about like, uh, the, the sort of implied, like, uh, like departure of, of the spirit of, of Neil McCauley when so much of the film seems colder than that and grimmer than that. Uh, and I like I appreciate we get this 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 image at the end of the picture, but I'm not entirely sure it is the thematically. I'm not sure this is the last shot of heat. You know what I mean? Like it's it, it feels like it is. It's a great shot. In terms of the, the story we've told, I'm not sure it is the one that encapsulates the movie we've seen or the 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 worldview yeah. uh, that it's brought to the story. I, I always interpreted it less as redemptive. And more as I'm trying to think the right word for it, but like, I mean, the real thing is that these two characters have a deep abiding respect for one another, even with the realization that the, the trajectories they are on will inevitably lead to one or the other dying. Like mm-hmm. the one will be killed by the other unless they completely separate themselves from what they are currently doing, which was never going to happen. And, you know, the thing that I think the movie plays with, it doesn't always, you know, completely get there. But I think I think especially in like the diner scene and kind of when, you know, uh, John Voight, uh, Nate, who we've not talked about at all, by the way, uh, which is fine. Fuck John Voight. But his Eddie Bunker impression is at least pretty good. I'll give him that. <laughs> um, but when, you know, Nate is talking about like, you know, oh, he's, 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 look how sharp he is. Look how sharp, you know, look how sharp he was to see that. Like, they both kind of enjoy the fact that they have found a kindred spirit in one another, even if they are from completely different sides of the moral spectrum, mm-hmm. at least as far as where they, you know, their vocations are concerned. And at the end, I kind of, I always interpreted that scene less as this is the redemption of Neil McCauley and more the realization that, like, this was our inevitable path. You are going to die now. You have no one left here. I am outstretching my hand, not because I think you have, you know, redeemed yourself, but because everyone I think deserves, especially, you know, two people who are so intertwined like this. I am simply giving you a last human connection Mm. before you're dead. That's it. You, you and I, we have crossed paths. We have had this life. We have had this experience together. I will probably never meet another person as attuned to my specific, you know, specific uh, psychology as I do you. I am recognizing this fact and I'm giving you one last moment of human contact before you bleed out. And that is, that is how I've always kind of chosen to interpret it. No, that's very, very out. I think redemption is the, definitely the wrong word. I think more like grace is what, it, what it's getting across, sure. but I think, is but he I think deserving of that. 
Yeah, or or that like the 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 film is offering a comforting like portrayal here of uh, of death. Uh, like I think the the film's been colder than, but I think I like I like your unpacking of it a, a lot, especially because I think the 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 have this image I do like is that Hannah is in the darkness mm-hmm. and in a lot of ways like it's not just that he's not going to meet someone as attuned as like Macaulay is, but like also we do know his life's never going to have anyone in it as far as we can tell. Like it's, it's pretty clear. Unlike an only takedown, he and Justine don't have really any pretense that it's going to work out. Like, right. Right, Because there aren't 20 more episodes of this coming right after the fact. Right. So, yeah. So it's, it's cooked. Um, You know, his, one of his closest friends is killed in the shootout. Uh, and then, and then this, but like, yeah, I mean, Hannah's definitely, uh, somebody that at the end of this, you can sort of feel, uh, the weight of all that loneliness that's coming. Yeah. Um, uh, heading his way, which because we'll find out is, more about in he, all he is, is what he's going after. And he's gone after this person. He's got him. And now all that's in front of him is just like, what's the next thing? Am I ever going to have someone like this to pursue again? Well, that's that's the thing. Like, if you watch like this, the 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 scene where like you know, like, he's not making eye contact with with Macaulay. He's he's mm-hmm. scanning this empty field, yeah. and like you know, when we we get the sh- the wide shot of it, you know, it's just it's just black, and there's a line of lights on the like you know horizon. But mostly, he's just standing in absolute darkness and kind of looking around and going, "Well, shit, I'm surrounded by darkness. That's all I got now." All that is there is the void. I am. <laughs> that's that's so... the Werner Herzog version of this movie. It is him staring into the literal void. Uh, I'm not convinced that Herzog is not an elaborate disguise that Michael Mann adopts or vice versa. Uh, sometimes. I mean, Pacino is coming close to channeling Kinski in this, so. God. <laughs> uh. And that's a hell of a place to, to leave these characters. But of course, we do have he too to look forward to. Oh, God, do we ever. Um, so we will we will keep an eye out to learn more about the backstory. It's of, such a choice to turn that into a novel and to not try and turn that into a movie. Like, I'm sure there's a reason for it, but I'm left wondering why exactly. I am. I am. And, and like Cause it doesn't gonna, cost 60 million dollars to write a book. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah, I am. I am so curious about what that what that thing is going to be. Oh, when I was writing the film, it was imperative for me to create complete life stories about all the characters and know everything about them. Man told Deadline, including Neil McCauley's early institutionalized years when he lost track of his brother before he parachuted into the streets, young, angry and dangerous. Like there's something there. There's something to that. I don't know that I would have, I could have gone the rest of my life not experiencing that and just being just fine, but I'm interested. Finally, we're getting Michael Mann's A Thief's End. Maybe we'll finally get Heat the Video Game, too. Maybe finally Randy Pitchford will get his dream and he can make oh, that God. game. I... Mm-hmm. Mm. Probably should Nobody's let Randy happened. Pitchford near that. Yeah. I hate to say it. I hate to say it. Give it to Druckmann. God damn it. Oh. Give it to Druckmann. You might be right. 
or I'm someone mad at new. This podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually going to say, Dia. So, like this, it just <laughs> before we tie this one off here, like this was your first time watching Heat after thirty years of having it built up to you, maybe to an unattainable degree. So that's so, the thing. So I know, like the the hype that this movie has been presented to me with. It was it was never going to live up to it. It's it's like, you know, it's like someone walking into Final Fantasy seven or Ocarina of Time now mm-hmm. at this like, you know, it's just like 30 now, years after the fact. Yeah, it is not going to work. It will not hit the same. And it's like, even like thinking about like kind of like the ending here and like the, the parts of the movie that I'm kind of like, mm, did this really misfire and wondering like, you know, did this this felt a little treacly. This felt a little overdone. It's like, OK, but also this is 30 years old. Like I got to, mm-hmm. you know like scale back to that time. Um, And so maybe at the time it would have hit better, but like um, after watching this, I immediately just watched point break. One of the other seminal texts of the dudes rock uh, canon. Heat is a fine film. Mm -hmm. It's it's, but at the end of it, it's just a movie. And like, you know, I watched Point Break. There are things about Point Break that I think are better than like that, that, that it does better than Heat. And there are things that Heat does better than Point Break. And like in the end, it's just a fucking movie. You can't see this, but Rob is doing a confused dog face right now, which is uh, <laughs> kind of looks like Amy Brenneman, you know, at the, uh, at the end of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, on the one hand, Point Break and Heat, they're of a kind. Oh, they're definitely of a kind. Um, Different like, approaches. <laughs> they are in many ways uh, like the Vincent Hanna and Neil McCauley of like movies in 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 some ways. Like uh, Point Break just wanted to have a good time. Um, no, Rob, but, you're missing the spirituality of Point Break. Mm-hmm. The Zen. Am I? Yeah. You don't understand the water on a spiritual level. It's very true. It's very true. <laughs> uh, and of course, you know, there's those other people who don't, they don't even understand the water. You know, they, they are, they, they, they surf, but they don't, they don't, <laughs> they don't understand its lessons. Uh, but then again, like point break, you're right. Shit. Yeah. It's more, I hate how good the parallel is. Yeah. That's also a thing where it's like, <laughs> Swayze's also a guy is like when the chips are down, the mask fully falls away mm-hmm. and it's like just bottomless violence. Yeah. And honestly, could this movie not have been improved by an appearance by Lori Petty? I think it could have been. Or uh, Anthony Kiedis, you know. Mm hmm. Well, <laughs> I mean, it is, like, was I- in Point Break, too. That's true. Wait, I forget. He is. He's a DEA agent when they oh. when they bust in on like the the neo Nazi drug method people. Yeah. <laughs> what a picture. Uh, yeah. I mean, it is like I can I can imagine. Uh, like this is a film of its moment. Yeah, it's, it is tough to have it have it live up to the billing. Um, I will be curious to see. Like, have you seen the inside the insider? Oh yeah. Okay, because because there because a lot of a lot of folks like he is like the consensus like the great Michael Mann film. I feel like there's been a for a while 
like a dark horse candidacy for the insider as like his secret best movie. So the insider was the last <clears throat> Michael Mann movie I saw in the theaters. Okay. Uh, and is it the last of the Spinozzi uh, collaborations um, or do they, he might've come back for Ali. I'm not sure. Who did collateral? Oh my God. Dante Spinotti. Why do you get so tight with Brett Ratner? <laughs> Look, you go where the work is, man. He came back for public enemies. Okay. That's mm. eh, a choice. I think I, I'd be so curious because that. I remember not liking that movie at all. No. And it's photography is a fucking mess. But I also feel like that was man flying. What's the opposite of too close to the sun? It's man thinking like digital can shoot in pitch black. I don't even need to light this. That'll yeah. make it look more realistic. And so you get sequences. that are just completely illegible. Like I think the movie looks like shit. Yeah, like, which kills me. And uh, also, I, Christian Bale has nothing to do with it. So, is the Insider our next movie? Yeah, that's the next one yeah. in the run. Fantastic! I have not seen the Insider since I saw it in theaters, and I did love it when I saw it in theaters. But it has been since 1997. Oh wow! Yeah, I'm I'm real curious then to see what you make of it now. Because again, one of those things where. Um, is trying to serve as like a cautionary tale in the moment it's made. Yeah. And from the vantage of now, it's a pretty clear and incisive like diagnosis of like, hey, what's one of one of many man works is trying to be like, hey, like what's going wrong with this country and the society? Mm-hmm. Uh, this time from the standpoint of journalism. Uh, so next month when we come back to manhunting, uh, Man is going to be reuniting with Pacino and directing Russell Crowe in The Insider, uh, which is a drama based on the 60 Minutes expose on the cigarette industry uh, and how the values of corporate news betrayed the whistleblower that trusted 60 Minutes to tell the story. Uh, so we will we will check that out next month. Until then, thanks for listening and subscribing to Waypoint Plus, and uh, as always, indulging us as we uh, as we go a man hunting. <laughs>